I am not a Christian. Saw some heads pop up when I said that. What I mean, don't worry, it's not that bad, will be more clear soon. But I say that in the context of the emotions that we carry into this room today. For many of us, this is the first or the second Sunday after the election that we're here. And many of us feel like we're not any longer a whole slew of things. We no longer feel safe. Some of us no longer feel secure. Some of us are afraid. We no longer feel safe that our jobs will be there, that certain things are going to happen. Many of us feel like we are no longer one thing or another. I've heard several people say they're not sure they can any longer call themselves Christian in the traditional sense of the word because if that's true, then how did so many people vote diametrically against what I believe my faith teaches me? What do people of faith have to say when we no longer feel all these things? Happy New Year. Because this is the end of the Christian liturgical calendar. It doesn't fit very well into Western patterns, right? We started school in September. For a lot of us, rhythms in D.C. start in September after the break here in August. And so we feel like we're well into things. But in the Christian liturgical calendar, this is the end. This is it. Next week, we get to pull out the kazoos and the party hats and celebrate the new year with Advent. But this week, we're at the end of all things. And in the course of history, Christians, for whatever reason, have found it palpable that on the very last Sunday of things, at their end of things the end of their world to declare one thing above all. Christ is king. Christ is king. By the way, I invite you throughout this sermon while we're talking about Christ the king, not only to check out the crucified uh, Christ in front of you, but also the reign of Christ so beautifully illustrated in the the back uh, stained glass window as well. Talking about Christ as king is kind of a strange image in the modern world. We have 196 countries in the world. Anybody know how many of them have monarchs of any kind? 26. 26 countries have monarchs, and 24 of those are males. There's kings, sultans, emperors, sheiks, princes, grand dukes of different kinds, and only two are queens. But of those 23 of the 26... 23 of them are constitutional democracies of some form or another. So only three are absolute, absolute powerful monarchs. So for us to call Jesus as king, most of us here have not lived in the land of an absolute monarch. We have a really hard time comparing ourselves to that kind of power. Many of us would like to call Jesus president, But that doesn't fill out the language. There's checks and balances. There's a whole slew of things in this world that don't make it a fitting image. So we go into the scripture and we try to figure out 
what the writer to the church is saying. Who is this absolute power of the world? Jesus. Jesus is the king who has absolute power, but unlike the monarchs at the time of the people who received this letter, these monarchs, this monarch, doesn't build power over, but power with the people. The kind of monarch who builds power with love and with listening and compassion. The writer's words are this, that this Jesus, this king, is the firstborn of creation. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created. That through this Jesus, visible things, invisible things, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, that all things were created through Christ, for him and in him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now this is Reformed Theology 101. I don't know if everyone here knows that you are Reformed, but congratulations, you're Reformed. What you are Reformed from is other forms of theology. Coming off the Protestant Reformation, we had the Lutheran school. Then John Calvin and some others created the Reformed school of theology. And really the essential tenet, it's not to say the other bodies of faith don't hold to this as well, but the one thing that then later Presbyterians and in our country, United Church of Christ, Reformed Church of America, Christian Reformed Church, and other Reformed bodies around the world proclaim and hold on to this one thing above all other things is that God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God is this cornerstone in Reformed theological thought. And when you see the world through that lens, it's supposed to change how you live. Now, this would have been very good news to the church in Colossa because we find out that this was a church that was kind of anxious. They were scared and afraid about the world that they were living in. Can anybody translate that perhaps to a modern context? This was a church that started worshiping angels and performed some other ascetic practices as well because they felt like they were out of control. They felt like they couldn't figure out what was going on, that there are other powers and principalities, either the evil Roman Empire or other powers locally that were harassing them. They were manipulating them. They were allowing them not to live the life they felt called to. So the writer of our letter writes to the church and says, it's not to say you don't have these things going on in the world, right? Even in our context today, we're not going to write off some of the questions that are on people's minds, both those who are supportive of and did not vote for the president-elect. But for both people, there are questions. And so Paul says the problem is not who you support in this world, but the lens in which you're seeing the world. The lens has to be Christ as king. When you see the world as Christ as king, you put aside this, this thought that human power and human autonomy is what's at work in the world. Interestingly, and not to solve the ancient debate about whether we have free will at all, but most recently, physicists 
have said that free will is not mathematically possible. Neuroscientists are almost overwhelmingly agreed in the same concept. Now, this is not the place to declare that that is true. But to say that all these things, all these ideas are coming out where people are suggesting that is peculiar. It does seem to at least suggest that perhaps the sovereignty of God is something for us to take even more seriously in our context. To think about a life lived through the lens of Christ's sovereignty. Through the lens of Jesus, we begin to figure out how we spend our time. Through the lens of Jesus' sovereignty, we begin to figure out how to apportion our kids' extracurricular activities. Through the lens of Jesus Christ, we begin to figure out where our money should go and how it should be spent, to what ends and what means. Through the lens of the cosmic Christ, we even determine how to feel in light of elections that go our way or don't go our way. Through the lens of the crucified one, we've reminded that the power is not on this earth, but on the one who died and rose for us. Through Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. So those are wonderful grand claims, and that's gospel in and of itself. Amen? But to go back to, to help you understand why I'm saying I am not a Christian. I mean that in some of what the traditional sense of the word has meant. Because increasingly I'm learning about the history of American Christianity and how it became to become so individualized and belief-oriented and less interested with how we act in the world. Some would suggest, some historians would suggest that part of that was due to American slavery. That as people were dealing with slavery, they would have to sit in church and wonder about the slaves that either sat next to them or in the balcony, depending on the kind of church they went to, figure out how they could deal with the cognitive dissonance of these lessons about liberation and freedom and at the same time own slaves. One way is to individualize faith into a belief system solely. We have beliefs, too. Everybody has beliefs. But if you emphasize this side of things, it de-emphasizes how we behave in the world. Some would call how we behave in the world politics. So you can imagine it makes that world an easier world to live in when, you deal, when you're dealing in the world with things that might make your brain feel a little awkward. We're knowing this through history. I also personally know this because at Princeton Theological Seminary, they came up with this idea called biblical inerrancy, which is the idea that the Bible is literally word for word, 100% true. In this place, in Princeton Theological Seminary, there were rooms in Alexander Hall, the dorm, for, for students to bring their slaves so you could have their slaves right next to them while they were studying. I happened to spend a year of my life in one of those rooms. And it was much smaller than my friend's rooms. Not to say that I'm bitter. So when I say I'm not a Christian, I don't mean that I don't 
love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, soul, and strength and of pursuing my whole life passionately towards that one. I mean to say that I want to follow the way. That I want to re-emphasize this aspect, the horizontal of the faith. And I'm doing it because I see Jesus doing it in the Gospels. Very rarely does Jesus ever come up to sit to someone and say, you know what you need to do? You need to change your beliefs. But very often, he approaches those he meets and says, come, follow me. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, the way is mentioned three times as a synonym for Christians. At one point it says, Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Later he says that he persecuted this way before he became Paul. This is the way of Jesus of Nazareth. So as we attempt to rediscover this biblical understanding of what it means to follow Christ Jesus, to be followers of the way, more so, or at least as much so as we are believers in Christ as Christians. I'm coming up with three sort of core tenets of this new way of being. The first is connection and community. Many of us in conversation have bemoaned the sort of individualism that overrides our society, that makes it really hard to connect with anyone in a real vulnerable way. Many of us can even come to church with one another and not know significant details about one another's life. It feels disconcerting in our stomachs. We know that there's something not right about that. And so followers of the way will be people who seek out courageously community. Not to overwhelm others or necessarily to convert, but knowing that that's what Jesus did. Built up relationships of truth and understanding. Within that comes the second piece. After building community, we're going to learn how to engage with as opposed to working for. Often the mainline church has been guilty of doing sort of a distance helping, right? We either send money towards the problem or we send things at the other, the people who have faults. And let's be honest, we're very good intentions. But if we're looking at the model of Jesus and the church of Acts, we're learning how to engage with others, not just towards others. And engaging with involves relationship. It involves spending time with. It involves working with the other, not saying, I have the answer to your solution, but I want to come and listen to you and work with you, and maybe as I learn something from you, I can learn how to work with you together. Microloans are a great example of this kind of working with, building up the resources that people already have and the gifts and talents that already exist in the community. So we're going to be building community and connection. We're going to be people of the way will be engaging with, not just towards the other, 
And the third thing is that we will be proclaiming with all of our heart, soul, and strength the sovereignty of God. Can you imagine John Calvin hearing this in 2016? These passionate, evangelical, Presbyterian Christians are going out there and proclaiming the sovereignty of God. He would have been thrilled. And that's the call for us. How can we proclaim God's sovereignty in our very lives by the way we feel about elections? By the way we treat the other, our neighbor who had a Trump or a Clinton sign in their window that we just can't understand why they would put that there or do that or that kind of Christianity is the way of Jesus followers of the way will build real community with transparency and vulnerability people of the way will engage with the other and people of the way will proclaim with their whole heart soul and strength the sovereignty of God I think that will look a little something like this. Delmer Chilton tells the story of a Lutheran pastor who had been a chaplain in Vietnam. One night he was in his tent when a young private came to see him. The private was newly arrived from the States and was scared. Very scared. Scared to death. The next day he was going on patrol for the first time and he was afraid to die. Cried. He moaned, he cursed, he prayed, and he wanted the chaplain to give him a, a saint's medal, a New Testament, some charm, some little thing that would keep him safe. He wanted the chaplain to tell him a prayer to say or some good deed that he could do, anything to keep from dying. And the chaplain said to him, Look, soldier, there's nothing I can do to prevent you from getting killed on patrol tomorrow. There's nothing I can do to promise you that it won't happen. There's only one thing that I can do. I'm going with you. That's what faith in the way of Jesus looks like. The chaplain walked into the jungle unarmed and unprotected to be with the soldier in the fearful world. And that's what you and I are called to. Summing up, people of the way are people of love. Not just love towards, but love with. Love alongside in the way of Jesus. This week reminded me of a song about love. Perhaps you've heard of it comes from Rent. It's the title of the sermon. 525,600 minutes, being to how many minutes we have in a year of our life. And so they ask that question, how do you measure a year in life? In daylights, in sunsets, in midnights, in cups of coffee, in inches, in miles of laughter and strife. 525,600 minutes. How do you measure a year in life? And they say that we measure in love. Love. So at the end of this Christian year, I invite you 
as we're singing our hymns and doing our prayers, as you drive home, before you turn on the games, reflect. How did you spend the last 525,600 minutes? And how can we more fully become followers of the way in the next Christian year? May it be so for you. May it be so for me. And all God's people said, Amen.